You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Today's Bible reading is from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 to chapter 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 to chapter 7, verse 1. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. This is the word of the Lord. Shane, thanks be to God. Well, hello, if you haven't met me before, my name is Coy, and I'm the associate pastor here at Sydney Hill, Melbourne West. And I want to start off with a story. You know, a few years ago, I remember talking to a, a good mate uh, who was about to get married. It's not Megan and Micah, but a good mate. They were about to get married uh, about how difficult it is to work on your guest list. And he told me this funny story about his own guest list that he had invited uh, through Facebook a friend named Kevin Newen. But it wasn't until Kevin registered as going on Facebook that he realized that he invited the wrong Kevin. Some Kevin that he had only spoken to once in his life that was a friend of a friend of a friend. And it was quite funny. We were having a laugh because he couldn't withdraw this invite because it would be rude. It would seem rude if he just took back this invite. But what was also funny we were laughing about was that this Kevin said yes. Like he's met this person once and it's like, yeah, I'm like best mates with him. I'm going to go to his wedding, right? But I felt bad for my friend, of course, uh, but to his, fence, to, to his defense, Kevin Nguyen is a very, very common Vietnamese name. Uh, it's like, it's basically John Smith for the Vietnamese groups of people. And um, I made sure that at my wedding, I invited zero Kevin Nguyen's just in case. Now we live in an age now where genuine relationships seem harder to identify, like you may have friends which you see as pretty close, yet they might not feel the same way or, or vice versa. In fact, a study was done on how many Facebook friends are actually real friends. And it was shown that with an average number of about, let's say you had 150 Facebook friends, in a time of crisis, only four of those friends would actually help. That means that you could only count on 2.6% of your friends to show genuine friendship. Of course, this is just based on a small study, but it does raise the question to us, 
uh, about how many good, how many genuine, how many true relationships do we actually have? It also makes us think, what are these true relationships like? Are they life-giving, reciprocal, influential, unconditional? Relationships are important and, in fact, biblical, with a, with a key being a key doctrine in Christianity that God is a triune God, that God is three in one, Trinity God, in perfect relationship with himself even before creation. God loves relationship, and we see this in the creation story. As he said, it was not good for man to be alone. And it's with our passage today that we see the importance of true relationships, the kind of relationships that really impact us, that make a real difference in our lives. And Paul wants to remind the church of Corinth of that. So in chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, what I suggest we see is, one, Paul's faithful relationship to the Corinthians, two, the Corinthians' attraction to bad relationships, and three, the profound relationship that we have in Christ. And it starts off quite interestingly with Paul alluding to his relationship with the Corinthian church, starting off our passage with him defending himself to them. Now, if you go to your Bibles, go to chapter 6. It's not in the booklets, but go to your Bibles, chapter 6, verse 1 to 4, which says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. Interestingly, this chapter begins with Paul in a sort of defense to Corinth, rejecting him. Because we have to remember that writing this letter, the current relationship he shared with the church in Corinth was one that had gone quite sour, a bit sour on the Corinthians' end. A self-confident, they were a self-confident church, obnoxious, loud, arrogant. They were seeing that Paul's authority wasn't really significant to them. He didn't fit their Corinthian way of life. So Paul reminds them of the relationship he has with them, that he loves and cares for these Christians in Corinth where he had helped plant this church and people were saved through it, where he wanted to see these Christians in Corinth flourish. So what Paul does in verses 3 to 10 of chapter 6 is share his heart to the church in Corinth. He says in verse 11, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. Paul shares genuinely and truly from his heart to remind them of why he lives the way that he does why he is so faithful to the Lord. He defends himself against the rejection of of his authenticity, of his apostleship to the Corinthians because the key behind their rejection of Paul was because they had seen, what they had seen from him was very much a life of weakness, suffering and trouble, quite counter to the current lifestyle in a city like Corinth and overall not so enticing to follow. I think of the classic movie, The Matrix, right, where the main character Neo gets the choice to take the red pill or the blue pill and one pill keeps him aware of the reality, you know, the hardships and and suffering of real life and a call to fight robots, uh, devouring the world or take the other pill and remain in this thing called The Matrix where everything is a simulation but life is generally pretty good in there and you don't have to deal with, with the hard reality. 
See, while the main character Neo chooses uh, the reality to take the pill that he sees the reality and and to fight the war and then go on to win, one of the supposed good guys in the movie chooses to remain in this matrix because he's more he's promised to receive all the wealth and good stuff in this simulated life, which is more enticing than the reality of hardship. See, the Christians of Corinth were beginning to feel that Paul could not truly be an apostle because it seemed like trouble followed him everywhere. He didn't live a lavish life, one that looked like blessing from God. In fact, it felt like everywhere that he went, he would bring incessant troubles, hardships and miseries, which showed more evidence of God being unhappy with Paul rather than being with him. So the Corinthian church went cold on Paul. And yet what I love about Paul is that even though the Corinthians may question him, Paul stays true to the word of God, reminding them that yes, his life is not flashy or one that displays great power or impressiveness, but it's in his life of experiencing suffering, affliction, calamities, imprisonment, sleepless nights. It's this kind of life that comes from enduring in the good news of Jesus Christ. That this life was the reality of being a follower of Jesus. That as he says in verses 3 to 10, it's the endurance to go through all this by the power of the Holy Spirit that produces purity, knowledge, patience, love, righteousness. This is what is commendable and displays authentic, genuine apostleship. He doesn't change, Paul doesn't change his tune and give in to what the Corinthian church was saying about him. He doesn't back down from the hardships that come his way uh, to, uh, to appease them by saying that their lifestyle is so good and, and his could be a lot better. Paul doesn't do that. But Paul remains faithful, sticking with this, the whole theme of, the, uh, of this whole letter, that suffering and affliction will come as followers of Christ. For Christians follow the suffering servant. But as verse 8 to 10 says, Paul says, we are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. You see the deep sense of peace in Paul's words here. The deep assurance that even though he may be seen as an imposter, a fake apostle by some, he is certain that by his living in faithfulness that he is truly one, that he may be unimportant to many people, yet he's known to the one who's most important. That while physically suffering near death, he knows of the life that comes from enduring punished, yet will never be killed, looking at as one in anguish and sorrow, yet he holds a deep joy within, looking poor and helpless to the world, to the Corinthians, yet having everything that he could ever want, holding on to the greatest treasure. See, theologian Scott J. Haifman says, as the Corinthians suggest suffering and weakness call into question the power of the Spirit, Paul is relentless in his response. The greatest display of God's power is not the absence of pain or the presence of a miracle, but Paul's faithful endurance in the midst of adversity through which God makes many rich. 
See, while the Corinthian church thought his life of struggle and affliction was unattractive and unwarranted for a true apostle of God, Paul reminds them that actually it's enduring this kind of life that marks his genuine apostleship and authority over them. This is what, this is what a true relationship ought to look like. Because Paul's life is marked by one of faithfulness to God. Paul exemplifies the Christian life to the Corinthians so that they should be opening up their hearts to listen to him. For his life wasn't one that demonstrated displeasure from God, but quite the opposite. As Romans chapter 5, verse 3 or 5 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. To the church in Corinth, here was a man genuinely opening up his heart to them in hopes that they would see and know of the true gospel. To me, Paul here demonstrates a true relationship to the believers of Corinth because he remains faithful to the Lord. He wants to motivate his hearers by his godliness so so that they too would grow in their godliness. And I think this reflects great leadership from Paul, a man who wants to exemplify what a good, true relationship looks like. And this was so important for the Corinthian church because a huge part of their going on cold on Paul was, as I said before, he didn't really fit the impressive picture of a person from Corinth. And so the Corinthian church were actually uh, being drawn to and impressed by actual uh, false apostles who were saying that they were the true ones and Paul was not. These were men, these were false prophets. These these men were modifying the gospel and, and and godliness to look good to people making Christianity look exactly like the Corinthian lifestyle, that you could still live this lavish life of fame, power, glory, sexual enticement, vanity, prominence, and be a Christ follower. So these so-called apostles were making their product look good by making themselves look good. They were diluting or modifying the gospel message, most likely because they knew that the true gospel message was not a popular one. Yet to see Paul standing firm in this passage, explaining and exemplifying his faithfulness to the Lord is so hugely encouraging for us and encouraging especially to those in ministry or those in leading roles. Because thinking to today, those in ministry can find it especially hard to do what Paul did and remain faithful, endure amidst the hardships of being an authentic Christian. Just the same as the ancient world, being a Christian does not look good to the world today. To many, it looks weak. To suffer for the sake of the gospel, to go through hardships and afflictions, to be promised that we will have it tough because of Jesus. Jesus himself said in Matthew 10, 22, that followers will be hated because of Jesus' name. That's not so enticing. It's hard to want to endure that. You know, a study in 2021 found that around 38% of reformed pastors had thought about quitting full-time ministry due to the hardships of isolation 
tribulation, political division, and affliction. 38%. For somebody in ministry and leadership, with so many people looking up to you, it can be easy to want to put up a front that everything is good in your life. That following Jesus is easy and filled with flowers and rainbows. But that's not the reality at all. See, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12 to 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But the words after, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's, Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So think about Paul. Even with Paul living faithfully, it resulted in the church that he planted rejecting him because they didn't like how his life looked. Ministry and leadership is challenging. Understandably, for so many, perhaps even for you sitting here today who who lead in some capacity or who have led in some capacity, the daily temptation is to flee the conflicts of ministry. The very famous pastor and author, theologian John Stott, even felt this, saying these words, well, the first temptation to which I'm more exposed, I think, is to run away, not to give in, but to, what is the word, to leave. I sometimes say my favourite text is from Psalm 55, oh, for the wings of a dove, that I may flee away and be at rest. So I found this constant controversy, this constant battling for the truth, very wearing. This is John Stott. To those in ministry and leadership, We may feel the allure of leaving it behind because of how hard it can get. Or for those who aren't in ministry or leadership, you may be tempted to never step into ministry or leadership at all because of the hardships. Like if I don't ever lead people, then I'll never have to deal with people's problems. The temptation is real. And I can honestly say that even I've felt this many times in my ministry life, which is why why I love reading passages, hearing passages such as this, the great reminder and example of great endurance as seen by an apostle of God, that he cared, that Paul cared for his church. And by enduring even amidst the hardships of a Christian life wrought with suffering, with imprisonments, with beatings, with calamities, he was actually doing his people a justice. Paul was displaying a true relationship to them by living out the gospel faithfully and living out the gospel truthfully. He let the the Corinthian church see and know, yes, the uh, the, the path of a Christ follower is hard. And yes, it looks completely opposite to the flashy life that you see in Corinth or the one promised by the false apostles. But let me tell you, Corinthians, that it is worth it. That I endure because I have the Spirit of God in me who leads me and moulds me. That while I'm treated as lesser to the world, I know that I am seen and known by the one who created the world and is far greater. That I have a treasure that can't be taken away. That I I have this treasure and I am a jar of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. That's what Paul said just two chapters earlier. So I may have nothing, yet I possess everything. 
says author R. Kent Hughes sums up, Paul's endurance declared that the gospel is true and that Jesus is worth it. So often our words are ignored by others, he says, including our nearest and dearest, but when they observe endurance for Christ in the midst of showers of troubles, they cannot deny the reality of our faith in Christ. See, I just love hearing this powerful story that somebody from our church shared to me, um, that the lowest point in his life, many, 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 many years ago, a day, just this all happened in one day, a day where he lost his uh, long-term relationship, uh, he lost his home, and he lost his job, all in the same day. In the despair, he prayed to God for help and comfort. And his atheist roommate saw this and asked him, why would he even do that? You know, it, it's pointless. All this has happened. Why are you, why are you praying? Yet with what can only be described as a divine intervention, not long after that prayer, on the very same day, God opened doors immediately as this gentleman from our church got a call from a friend of a friend who was calling him and asking if he knows anyone that could come live with them because they were looking for a new roommate. It's like, yeah, I know somebody, me, can I come? And it was weird because the atheist friend witnessed this and admitted in that, in that moment, it's like, well, okay, that was a bit spooky. And we can joyfully say that this atheist friend today is now a Christian and is actually going to Bible college. How wild is that from seeing somebody live out the gospel with a true relationship to this man? The Apostle Paul exemplifies a true relationship with the believers of Corinth by living out great faithfulness to the Lord. He openly reflects and embodies what it means to follow Jesus. So the Corinthian church can't be fooled. They can't be shocked, but they can trust that he's being truthful to them. And that's a great encouragement to all of us in the church to endure in godliness, truthfully, faithfully and honestly for the sake of those who see us. But as I've already hinted at, the Corinthian church weren't so committed to or on reciprocating this type of relationship with Paul because as I said earlier, there were groups of false apostles who were enticing them to follow them and their ways. And so what follows is Paul's very well-known words about being unequally yoked. And so as my second point, where what we find in our passage as we continue is Paul wanted to speak into the Corinthians' attraction to bad relationships. Now let's look at what he says to them in verse 14 of chapter 6. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols. See, the word yoke here is a farming term, uh, which describes for us when two animals are yoked together to plough a field, uh, usually in a straight line. See, in the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelites not to yoke an ox and a donkey together because it's a, it's a mismatch, right? One would go faster uh, than the other, so it wouldn't work, differing in size and strength, unable to pull equally or in harmony, not going in the same direction. And it's with this principle that Paul brings and applies it now to the life of the church. The understanding that Christians need to be careful because believers and unbelievers will not be heading in the same direction, will not move in the same way in harmony, will not pursue the same goals. 
And what are some examples of this for us? Well, the most obvious one and what the passage is quite well known for is that of the relationship of marriage and dating, right? Because marriage, because marriage is one of the most intimate relationships and deeply spiritual as seen in the Bible, there is no doubt that the, prin- uh, that the principle of being unequally yoked applies to this type of relationship. Two people might seem perfect and compatible in so many ways, but if one is a follower of Christ while the other isn't, then there are two people pulling in different directions spiritually, which is why this verse is so often thought about when it comes to the relationships of dating and marriage. Yet while a Christian should not pursue dating and marriage relationships that are unequally yoked, Paul did encourage those Christians who are already married with an unbeliever to stay married. Yeah, and, and be a gospel light to their spouse, as seen in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But for those thinking about marriage or dating, there's certainly an application here to take note of. Because what relationship in life needs more of the same heart and more of the same mind to be moving in the same direction than that of marriage? So there's dating and marriage that this can apply to. But it can also, it's not just for dating and marriage, but it also can apply to business and work. Now, not to mean that we shouldn't or couldn't work with unbelievers because then we'd, realistically we'd never have a job, but sometimes there comes a time in your job where it asks you to link arms or be motivated or to conform to particular things that are contrary to your faith, where it becomes an unequal partnership. I think of business partnerships where perhaps uh, the other person you're partnering with decides to do things very dodgily and very dishonestly or being in organizations that clearly require you to cast away your beliefs to agree with theirs. Workplaces that ask you or worse, force you to compromise your witness or value as a Christian. So this unequally yoke can also be applied to business partnerships. And I think the other relationship that I can refer to, the most obvious one is friendships. See, now I don't mean that Christians shouldn't be friends with unbelievers. In fact, in fact, we should be friends with them. We, we should be reflecting the light of Christ to them. We should be like Jesus and be friends with sinners, friends of sinners, friendships that are genuine, that are respectful, that are loving, not condescending. But friendships can still be unequally yoked when the bonds and influences are strong, strong enough to draw us away into the ways of our friends, enticed by the ways of their living, wanting that over a life of faithfulness leading to spiritual danger. And Paul has talked about this before. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, bad company ruins good morals. See, so Paul's well-known words here to the church in Corinth can most definitely apply to many spheres of life, dating, marriage, business, friendships, where we imagine ourselves as one animal dragging the plow one way while the other person drags it the other. It's clear from Paul here, from these words, we ought not to be unequally yoked. But let's think deeper about what's actually going on in Corinth. Because it's hard to imagine Paul was strictly thinking about dating or marriage when he said this. But we need to remember that Corinth was a really sinful place. And the church was battling with with some significant sins during this time. See, in 1 Corinthians, the first letter, for instance, we hear about a church member living with his father's wife as the church embraces him for that. There were members engaging in immorality, making use of prostitutes as well as disregarding their marriages. 
members participating in pagan idol worship and celebrations, even some members looking down on other believers who wouldn't join in on them worshipping other idols, calling them weak. Their worship was often filled with drunkenness and debauchery, with members also flouting their spiritual gifts in spectacular, self-glorifying ways. See, one writer writes that even in the morally corrupt society of the Roman Empire, Corinth was known for its excessive moral decay. This was a bad place. And so understanding this context, it was clear to see that the Corinthian church was heavily influenced and succumbed to the culture around them. So it's no doubt that the church in Corinth had a problem with bad relationships. They were so easily tempted into into poor relationships and influences around them that affected the entire church. But I think what the underlying problem was, was that the Christians in Corinth had a problem with idolatry. All their issues were related to not worshipping God properly, but worshipping other things. Look at what Paul says in verse 15 to 16. What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So Belial, often a word referring to evil and corruption, but here was used as the name for Satan. Paul contrasts Jesus and Satan uh, saying, how could Jesus even have fellowship with Satan? And just like in his first letter, 1 Corinthians, where Paul talked about not partaking, having fellowship with idolaters, not defiling themselves in that, here Paul makes the same connection as he does in 1 Corinthians because the big issue for the Corinthian church was their temptation to bad relationships. But there's one bad relationship that was at the core of all this. It's the Corinthians' relationship with the world. That is what is core to all this. The Corinthians' relationship with the world. That was their main problem. So I think the heart, at the heart of what Paul was saying here was not to not yoke themselves with unbelievers, centers on steering away from idolatry. Don't participate in this. As R. Kent Hughes describes, that is, do not be allied with unbelievers as to their teaching or ways of life or false worship. False worship idolatry. See, the problem with the Corinthian church wasn't that they were doubting that Jesus was Lord. Their problem was that they wanted all the other stuff too, while worshipping Jesus. The Corinthians wanted the pleasures, the shiny things, the luxuries, the relationships, the idols, the world, along with their faith. And they were willing to compromise their beliefs for this defiling themselves, worshipping other idols while claiming to worship the one true God. Paul is making his plea to them here to not yoke the Christian faith with the idols of the world. Like imagine you saw a car on the road that on its bumper it had the Jesus fish and then next to that it had the Islam crescent and Jewish star of David and then you look inside and you see like a, a statue of Buddha hanging from the window, the rear view, rear view mirror. You'd be, you'd be confused. This is not the reality of Christianity. But Jesus said that he is the way, that he is the truth, that he is the life, and that the only way to God is through him. No other way. Not a few different paths. Not an option of different saviors. 
As one writer says, the exclusivity of his claim is at the core of what it means to be a Christian. The minute you say you believe in Jesus as one way to get to God, but not the only way, you reject Jesus' own teachings about himself. See, when somebody rejects the teachings of Jesus yet claims to accept and believe in him, this person has created a false Jesus, which is exactly what the church in Corinth has been doing. False apostles painting this glorious life of lavish lifestyles and worldly pleasures met with other idols for Christians. A life yoked to other beliefs, values and practices. So as you can imagine, idolatry would have been attractive in the ancient world. It was easy, pleasing, convenient, indulgent, even sensual for some. I mean, you could carve out your own idol from whatever you like in those days. Selfishly, you can then worship what you just carved out and ask this God to help you. It required not much of a sacrifice outside of some tangible things. And then you would go and live how you want to live. It was pleasing, indulgent, even sensual, you know, letting you eat feasts, get drunk, revel in debauchery and sexual immorality. This is what the Corinthian church was yoking themselves to. This is what their true relationship looked like, a relationship with the world. Hearing this, doesn't this remind you a lot of our culture today? Doesn't the 21st century look exactly like this, perhaps even worse? You know, I can be a Christian and I believe in karma. I can, be, I can be a Christian and I believe in prosperity. I can be a Christian and I believe in self-indulgence. See, for many believers today, we want the Christian tag, but we don't want it to cost too much. We want the blessings and the goodness of the Bible, but also want all that the world gives. So it's no wonder that the false apostles of today get mega churches that fill stadiums and churches weekly by the millions People are allured, are tempted into all sorts of bad relationships because they want what is falsely promised to them, getting whatever you want and living however you want. And so people are drawn to the worst possible relationship, the relationship with the world, where they can worship a false Jesus because their love of idols is far greater than Jesus himself. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Whether it be close relationships, partnerships or friendships you may be in, or whether it be your general lure towards the idols of the world, remember what Paul says, that we must not be yoked to the world. We are righteous, not lawless. Light, not dark. We belong to Jesus, not Belial. We are believers, not unbelievers. And as Paul says best in verse 16, for we are the temple of the living God. See, while Paul starts off this passage reminding the Corinthian church of his true relationship to them, then making the plea for them to not be attracted to poor relationships surrounding them, my last point and a great reminder from Paul is that we as believers already have the greatest and truest relationship, our relationship with the living God. Look what he says. 
For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. See, I think one of the most, uh, one of my most favorite overarching themes in the Bible is the one of God's presence throughout history, where from the beginning of creation, God desired to live among and commune with his people. Seen in the early chapters of Genesis in the Garden of Eden, where God walked and talked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day, it says in Genesis. But humanity sinned, breaking that intimate communion they had with God, severing the once perfect relationship because of our unrighteousness. But God in his grace would make a covenant, which is, which is a promise with his people. As he says in Leviticus 26, verse 11 to 12, I will put my dwelling place among you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. And so as the Old Testament would tell us, God's people wandered the desert after being freed from exile as read in Exodus and God wanted to inhabit wanted to inhabit a place with his people. So God's presence dwelled in the tent of the wilderness, in the tabernacle, as we may have read in the Old Testament. He's guiding his presence, guiding his people, telling them when they should move and when they should stay put. But that relationship wasn't the fulfillment of the promise. As once God's people entered and remained in the promised land given to them by God, God affixed his name to a static place sanctifying Solomon's temple as the Lord's holy dwelling place as seen in 1 Kings, where for generations God's people would regard the temple in in great reverence and holiness as the place that God dwelled. But that still wasn't the promise complete because as seen in the gospel books of the New Testament, the presence of the living God would then be manifested in a new way, in the person of Jesus Christ, God's Son, God incarnate, the internal Word of God, as John 1 says, the Word of God became flesh and made his home among us. God's presence lived among his people through his life and ministry of Jesus. And it was in Jesus that that severed relationship between humanity and God, as read in Genesis, would be mended. In Jesus dying on the cross, paying the price of our sin and and unrighteousness and defeating it with his resurrection, does he reconcile us to God? That those who confess their sins and have faith and follow in this word, word become flesh, our relationship with our creator, once broken, is restored. All by the grace of Jesus. And so by the work of Christ on the cross, that promise that God will dwell with his people is fulfilled in an amazing way. Because as read in the New Testament, God's presence now dwells in believers themselves. Through the Holy Spirit, we now have God in us. To us, the church, the body of believers who gather in the name of Jesus, what was once a static place of worship as the Israelites gathered at the temple is now us. We are God's temple. As Paul said in Ephesians 2, the church is built <clears throat> built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him too, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. God's presence is with us. God's presence in us. God is in our midst. 
Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the temple, a dwelling place for God, for the God Almighty, where Paul essentially asked here, will you keep this house clean? So you see the relationship that Paul reminds the Corinthian church that they have here? They are in the greatest relationship they could ever know, the one with the holy, almighty God who dwells in them. So why be allured by counterfeit relationships filled uh, with empty promises? Why succumb to the relationship with the world that is fleeting when you, church, already have the best relationship in the Lord God who has brought you out of the depths of darkness and brokenness and into his marvellous light and life. This is the relationship the Corinthian church already had in Christ Jesus. And it's the same relationship that you already have as believers of Christ. God is truly with us and we share with him the deepest relationship which is why Paul pleads with the Corinthians to not be yoked to unbelievers. Don't be attached and lured by the idols and delights of the world. Don't settle for poor, toxic, uh, counterfeit relationships of the world when you already have the greatest, the most truest, the most intimate relationship available to you. You are the temple of the living God. God making his appeal through you. You are Christ's ambassadors, he said earlier. The temple where God's presence was in the Old Testament was a place of holiness and worship. So church, live as a people who are holy and worshipful of the Lord God. Take hold and embrace the sweetest relationship freely offered to you by such a gracious God. Now, as I close, in verse 17, Paul references the words of God saying, touch no unclean thing then, then I will, then I will welcome you. Here, God isn't saying to get your act together so well and so good, and then you can start talking to God. But rather, I think what God says here is reminiscent of what Jesus said in his very famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, where Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That's the promise from Jesus and the one that Paul refers to here for believers. Do you want to see God? Do you want God in your midst? Do you want him to dwell with you? Do you want that true relationship with him? Then see the logic of what Paul is is saying God is telling us right now. You may have to give something up. Your friends, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your job, your prestige, your reputation, your relationships. But do you see what you get? God says, you get me. You get my presence. I, the Lord God, will live among you. I will walk among you. I will live with you and I will welcome you. And perhaps the most comforting to hear, as in verse 18, God says, and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me. See, the relationship that we share with our Lord God is that he is our father. We are sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the father who welcomes home the prodigal son after being in the cold for so long and assures the eldest son that everything he has is his. The father who loves and tends to his sheep and to leave the rest and leave the rest to find the one. The father who gave his very own son, Jesus, to lay down his life for his sheep, the church.
the Father who welcomes you into a true relationship with him. As Pastor Kevin DeYoung said, we are light, not darkness. We're children of the King, not some pauper. And he is our greatest reward. And he stands ready to welcome us in. This is the relationship that has been promised to you by the work of Christ Jesus. What a relationship we have with our Lord God Almighty. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can call you Father. We are so blessed to have a Lord who loves relationships, who wants us to be a people, to have fellowship, to have communion. Lord, help us be a people who desire to both live and seek true relationships, relationships that are life-giving, faithful and gospel-centred. Help us when we are lured into the relationship with the world and let us fix our eyes on Christ, knowing that by his blood we are made righteous, that we are now temples of the living God, shining your light of glory and life to the darkness of the world. Thank you for the greatest relationship that we could possibly ever know that we could be reconciled and redeemed and restored by your grace because you love us. We love you, Lord, and we praise you and we thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.